Hi everyone. As usual, it's Pamba, your host here. During this time, many of us are pondering our personal relationships with family and friends. My folks are all in the UK and David's in Spain, and we're trying as best we can to maintain our connections via messages and FaceTime. For today's featured guest, though, studying close relationships is her bread and butter. So join us as we speak to Dr. Lindsay Rodriguez as she talks about the science of these human connections and how they fare under stress. Howdy, listeners. We have crossed the bridge today from Tampa to our neighboring St. Petersburg in order to come and speak to Dr. Lindsay Rodriguez. How are you, Lindsay? I'm doing fantastic. Great to be here. How are you? Well, thank you. That's it. We were commenting on how bizarre the weather is because we seem to be having thunderstorms, which are usually summer weather in the middle of December, which is, for me, it's very disappointing. I like my cold winters here. Yes, I think we were <laughs> suggesting it maybe because the lightning are playing on the television tonight. It's <laughs> <laughs> in honor of them. Yes, quite. Um, so as our listeners know, we ask our scientist guests to introduce themselves by telling us what it was that inspired them to go into science and what they studied and where. So let us know how you got here. Okay. Well, um, I have known what I wanted to do with my career since I was like nine. Um, I remember someone asking me in fourth grade what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I said a psychologist and I think their eyes got really big because they were like, you know what that is. That's interesting. (laughs) um, I've always been really captivated by the science of close relationships specifically. Uh So... um, marriages and close friendships and family relationships and sort of the ties that people have in their life. They're one of the most important things in our life. And I think I was always just really interested in this underlying science to it all. We Mm -hmm. like to think of relationships as this really nebulous thing, but in reality, there is actually quite a bit of science underlying it. Yeah. So I was uh, scoping out your CV and you hopped between Florida and Texas for most of your training. Is that right? That's right. Yep. Undergraduate um, education at the University of Florida and PhD, master's PhD at the University of Houston. And I stayed there and then I got a job at the University of New Hampshire, but um, I was born and bred in the South and (laughs) so I didn't last very long at the University of New Hampshire. I had a a wonderful time there. My colleagues were fantastic, but um, a job in St. Petersburg opened up and I just, I couldn't help it. I I got to go home and I'm near my family and my best friends from childhood. So uh, I felt really fortunate to be able to do that. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, For a lot of scientists, you find, oh, it's great to go and travel at some point. And Mm -hmm. now David and I are both several thousand miles away from our families, which sucks Mm -hmm. on the subject of relationships. So, um, (laughs) yes, I can completely appreciate just wanting to move back to be close to them. Yes. And St. Petersburg, Florida is just, it's so beautiful. I see dolphins on a daily basis and manatees and sunsets and white pelicans. And I paddleboard all the time. It is the Floridian cliche. Yes. Yeah. It lives up to its reputation. Yep. And we have to give a shout out to the the poor poor tap room here in St. Pete, which is like it's literally like a candy shop, but with beer. <laughs> so you go and pick out the, the one drink that you want to have and you just and David's going off to get another one. <laughs> Lucky him. Um, so, yes, I'm drinking this lemon donut concoction right now, which is ridiculous. But, um so what's interesting is that while we're talking about alcohol, this is yep. this is 
kind of what's underpinning your research right now. Is that correct? It is. It is. Yep. So um, I have a few different lines of research that are kind of interwoven in my program. And a big one is is alcohol use and, and the difference between sort of moderate, light or moderate, not that you know, use that isn't harmful versus the heavier patterns that can sometimes come along with consequences for people. So um, some of my research has worked on developing brief interventions for college students and alcohol use. Some of my other research has focused on alcohol use in romantic relationships. I guess that's what I'm probably most well known for Um, and how people handle it and how people manage alcohol in their close relationships. So what they do if they think their partner drinks too much and how it affects their conflict and relationship functioning and all of that good stuff. Yeah, so you are the director of, now let me get this acronym right. Um, It seems very appropriate. So it's actually the word HEART, but it stands Mm -hmm. for Healthy Emotions and Relationship Theories. You tell us what that actually means. Yes, I remember trying to come up with the acronym actually in my lab, and and I really liked the idea of calling it the Heart Lab. Now we have all of this swag, and everything says Heart Lab, and it's kind of fun. But underlying it, I really wanted to make sure that I focused on um, relationship health. So what differentiates healthy relationships from unhealthy ones, and how can we get those unhealthy ones back to? a more normalized state and then um, emotions are so deeply embedded in close relationships and Mm -hmm. emotion regulation is like a facet of individual and relational health that I study a lot so I wanted to have some emotions in there and then um, theoretical I try to make sure all of my research is theoretically driven so develop brief interventions that have applicable real-world possibilities for utilization by anyone but also that's based in empirical and theoretical science Mm -hmm. so I think that's really where it came from and there's something about alcohol in the heart maybe we could figure that out I don't know (laughs) (laughs) replace the a or something but yeah yeah so um we should probably backtrack a little bit and get you to mm-hmm. explain what social psychology means. Because I bet a lot yeah. of people, when they hear a psychologist, they think you're trying to scope them out and get in their head. So well, how is it you explain to people what you do? Yeah. So whenever people hear that I'm a psychologist or a psychology professor, the very first thing they say, as you can imagine, is, are you analyzing me? I bet you figured out what I'm thinking right now and, and things like that. And I usually try to say, no, 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 I'm a social psychologist. And then their eyes just kind of glaze over. Yeah. <laughs> And it's funny, I didn't know what social psychology was either. I think you guys are interested in like our journey into how we became what we are, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's a little story that goes along with that, and it goes along with social psych, so I'll explain it. When I was an undergraduate at University of Florida, I knew I wanted to be a psychologist, but I didn't know what kind. And I knew there were programs, but I didn't know anything about, you know, social psychology. And I remember seeing it as a potential class and being like... No, that sounds super vague. I don't know what social, is it sociology? What what the heck is that? And so I just decided not to take it. And one day I was wandering through the bookstore at the University of Florida, like nerds do, (laughs) and I came across this textbook called Intimate Relationships. It was like the science of intimate relationships. And it stopped me in my tracks because I knew I had found... If there were a science of close relationships, it was what I wanted to do forever. And I, you know, it was like this light bulb, oh my gosh, this is actually something I can do. Mm-hmm. And I, I knew I wanted to take the class that went along with the textbook. And it was a, a course in close relationships, which is so funny because now I've taught that and it's just so cool to go full circle. But the prerequisite for it was social psychology. And I remember being kind of disappointed, like, 
Oh, oh no. Fine, I'll take it. <laughs> and it was like the very first day of the course, I knew, I just knew it was what I wanted to do forever. Um, social psychology, one way to describe it is that it's the science of real life. It's the science or wisdom. It, it uses science to try to answer questions that we've been asking for millennia. Yeah. You know, what? what is the most important thing in our life? How do we get people to help other people? Why are people mean to other people? Why do people care about being in one group versus the other? What's the science of discrimination and attitudes and persuasion and conformity and obedience? And there's just, we could go on all day. So when I first started taking the social psychology course, I was like, oh my goodness, there's so much here that is answering, that's, that's wisdom. It's like wisdom in science and how much better can you get than that? So that was sort of, I knew at that point. Given the current political climate, it all seems very yes. pertinent right now. Uh, maybe most people should be studying this. The biases and heuristics that we use oh, yeah. every day and mo people's motivation and especially cognitive dissonance. So the idea that we're very good at justifying how we get where we are and justifying the way that things happen. And so even if we think that we couldn't have predicted an outcome after the fact, it's very easy to say, oh, I, I knew that was going to happen. I could have predicted that. And <laughs> hindsight bias. It's just, like, you know, it's hard to have any conversation and not be able to tie it to social psychology in some way. Yeah. So David's uh, first question is, what does theory mean in psychology? Are there equations? <laughs> That's a great question. A theory is a set of principles that psychologists put together to make, you know, in real world terms, I call it just trying to tell a story about the way things happen. Mm -hmm. In psychology, some of our largest theories um, have a set of tenets that are falsifiable that we have sort of built upon for years and years and years. And so the statistical equations underlying those tenets our equations, but it's, I don't think it's quite the same as like a mathematics theory. Um, Can you tell or, what David's background is? Yes. <laughs> we definitely, I mean, there's so many equations that go into any answering any empirical research question. So that is, you know, another reason why I love social psychology is that we take these questions that seem so vague. What attracts a person to someone else? What makes someone seem more intelligent than they really are? And you can actually, you know, scientifically with numbers and data answer those really interesting questions. So I would say we, we have equations, but they're more in the form of statistics that we use to answer them. Yeah, at the same time, these are the kind of questions that I think people want to be answered. Yes. Like they, yes. they want that formula to be able to find the perfect mate, right? Absolutely. Algorithms and big data. And so many social psychologists who don't pursue an academic path will go into, if they're relationship scientists, will go into working for eHarmony or mm -hmm. Match or Facebook or Google or any number of those because they're all looking for creating some kind of algorithm to answer a certain question. But in your case, you're actually looking to try and develop something that's a bit more therapeutic, I guess? Yes. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. I've, I've always been interested in developing something that people can do that's very brief in their life that will have a really important and meaningful change in terms of improving their outcomes or their relationship or their partner's outcomes, things like that. So we um, work a lot to develop alcohol brief interventions, so to help people reduce their alcohol-related consequences if they're drinking um, 
patterns are pretty heavy Mm -hmm. or I have other interventions where we try to help people's relationship outcomes. Maybe they might reappraise conflict a little bit differently. So everyone has conflicts, right? We have conflict with our friends, our neighbors, our romantic partners. Mm -hmm. We have them roommates, um, anybody in our life. Yeah, pretty much everyone, yeah. (laughs) Bosses, those under us, everyone. And... Uh, the way that we think about conflict, uh, the the importance of perception and the way that we reappraise these things in our minds after they happen, or it, those processes are really important for predicting how we respond to them in the future, how we feel about it, how we feel about ourselves. And so I've, I've also worked to develop some interventions to help people think about conflict a little bit differently. So the general theme would be I try to help develop things that people can do that don't take very long but are really important in enacting meaningful change. Okay. Mm-hmm. I wrote in such tiny writing today. <laughs> so little. I, I normally have a little notebook with me, but I left it at home. So and your I, handwriting is spectacular. Oh, thank it. you. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so this is this is kind of tied to that. So we had a question mm-hmm. from one of our friends called Ankita on Instagram. Uh-huh. And she said, what is the threshold of regular drinking that's been found to impact behavior and relationships? Oh my goodness, such a great question. So the answer for relationships is it depends, right? Because even if we were to ask, I love to take polls. I'm such a social psychologist. <laughs> so I'll be in a bar and I'll just go take a poll of the people who are here right now. But if we were to ask them that question, the numbers would probably range. I mean, actually, their answers would range. It wouldn't even be a number of drinks. It may be other things like alcohol-related consequences that they experience, like a hangover, missing class or work, or something like that. Um, NIAAA has noted that um, someone Sorry, is what's cons- NIAAA? Oh, yes, of course. It's the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. And it's the NIH Institute dedicated to improving or reducing alcohol-related consequences. Uh, so they would say that um, I believe it is eight or more drinks per week for women and 15 or more drinks per week for men would put men and women, women and men, at a threshold of being what's considered an at-risk drinker. So certainly not a problematic drinker, but just um, on the level of on the, the continuum of mm-hmm. risk, uh, that would be the first threshold at which you would become an at-risk drinker. Yeah. And so in relationships, it just so depends on the two people, right? Like if um, Marty is drinking 20 drinks a week, but Jill also drinks 20 drinks a week, they may be at risk for experiencing some alcohol-related consequences, but mm-hmm. if they are having fun together and they're enjoying it, um, it may not be a problem for their relationship. Yeah. However, if Marty's drinking 20 and Jill drinks 3, you could see how Jill may be a little more sensitive to that, and that might be a little bit more of a problem in their relationship, the exact same drinks that Marty's drinking. And so it's it's all about that perception. And I've done a lot of work looking at what, what makes someone think that their partner has a drinking problem. Yeah. And it really is, you know, a combination of, like, family history of alcohol problems, personal alcohol use, expectancies about alcohol and the way that alcohol affects the body, um... All sorts of, and maybe past history with someone who had an alcohol problem. It doesn't have to be a parent. It could be a past romantic partner. And so the perception is what really drives things. I have a couple of papers showing that concern about partner drinking is really bad for the relationship. Mm -hmm. Makes sense, right? Um, And it matters so much more if you're concerned about it. How much you're drinking, how much your partner's drinking, doesn't matter at all. 
it's really just if it's concerning you. And so, and the number of drinks also, one more thing I should note is that imagine let's take eight drinks a week. For example, if someone is drinking one drink a night plus one in a week, they may be able to do that and have absolutely no problems at all. Mm-hmm. But if someone is drinking eight drinks in a two-hour period on a Saturday night, uh-huh. they may have a higher risk for experiencing those consequences that we care about. So uh, the number of drinks is really not that great of an indicator for uh-huh. alcohol problems. What we usually look more into is is why people drink, so their motivations, looking at um, whether they drink to cope or not, people who drink to regulate their negative affect have worse mm-hmm. outcomes. And then those alcohol-related consequences, like having fights with other people, um, losing things, ending up in the trash can or <laughs> the, <laughs> the bushes kind of in the middle of the night. Yes. Right? <laughs> exactly. Um, so actually, this it's kind of interesting because it really caught my eye when I was reading your bio and you mentioned that alcohol use is not always negative. Yes. So how often in your studies do you see that it actually helps relationships? That's a great question. You know, I, and, and along with the science part of it, I, I think it depends on what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking for a time for alcohol to be positive, you might sort of change the way that you're approaching that research question and approaching mm-hmm. the, the data and approaching the measures that you're looking at. What I generally find is that couples who drink light to moderate amounts or not at all but if they use alcohol together (laughs) it's all about concordant use yeah um and it's all about it being non-problematic so if it's if it's light or moderate having a glass of wine with dinner going out and just socializing being with friends and consuming alcohol together that tends to be pretty helpful for relationships Mm -hmm. it's really when either partner's drinking becomes detrimental to themselves then it's going to cause a concern in the partner and then they probably will have negative interactions about it and have problems as a as a consequence of that Um, but couples who usually use it as like a bonding you know I just think about I I was developing an intervention recently for couples and I was trying to come up with date ideas that didn't involve drinking because Uh you know I have all these college students in my lab and they're like well what are we supposed to do if we don't drink everything involves alcohol (laughs) and so we really did have to think about Um, you know, doing yoga together or going on a walk or, you know, a park or going shopping or going to visit or pet an animal or, Mm -hmm. you know, but it wasn't as easy as the typical list of dating ideas that you might have because those traditionally do involve drinking. And I think in the, actually in the beginning of relationships, when people go on first, second, third dates and they're getting to know each other, alcohol can be useful for helping especially if someone has an expectancy that alcohol helps them open up emotionally Uh Um, and sometimes that expectancy is all that really matters whether they drink or not doesn't as much Um, if they think that it's going to help them open up it helps them disclose more about themselves which helps the other person disclose more about themselves and it's this feedback loop that keeps Mm -hmm. going and I think really produces a more intimate conversation and rapport than you know than if they yeah feel more closed off so that's really interesting to me, who is someone who comes from a conservative Indian background where, first of all, like certainly my parents' generation and above, mm-hmm. they did not have romantic relationships. Uh-huh. They have what they call assisted marriages. Yep. So they kind of meet each other a couple of times before yeah. they agree to it. Uh-huh. And we also come from a culture where women did not drink at all. Yep. And I wonder if that's one of the reasons why 
alcoholism is kind of tolerated to a huge degree mm-hmm. um, because it's it's something sadly that runs through my family mm-hmm. and it's like in some areas there are three generations that demonstrate yeah. the same kind of behaviors yep. mm-hmm. um, so have you done much in the way of studying how particular groups behave yes and no okay. um, not so much different cultures mm-hmm. but we do have some research looking at, at drinking um, the University of Houston has the most diverse student population that mirrors the population in the United States in the oh, United okay. States yeah, yeah, yeah. so um, it's almost exactly what the United States population is so that's kind of fun there's no majority group so we get yeah. to really look at different races and ethnicity and, and the the way that acculturation plays a role in, in alcohol use and motives and things like that um, but for relationships and gender you mentioned gender mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting because we have some recent research coming out that shows that you know I was really surprised and my dissertation was all about it was a, a funded pre-doctoral fellowship that looked at drinking and marriage over time so we followed married couples over six months and we measured their drinking and their conflict and their relationship stuff and sort of looked at the trajectory of satisfaction and, and everything over time. And it showed that, not what I expected, but it makes total sense, that when there's discrepancy in the partnership, so they call the idea of, of concordance in drinking the drinking partnership. So if you've got mm-hmm. two people and they drink, you know, if there's a discrepant level of the husband and wife or the two partners, those relationships tend to do more poorly in terms of their relationship health and functioning. Um, But what I found was that was true, but it was also different for husbands and wives. So these were all heterosexual couples in this particular data set. And when the wife was the heavier drinker, husbands and wives were much less happy than when there was a discrepancy and the husband was the heavy drinker. Um, And so it was almost like that, that pairing was the pairing that was the worse off worst off compared to everybody else and so a lot of times light concordant moderate concordant couples will be not different in their satisfaction followed by couples that are discrepant um, followed by and this was especially in this particular sample true for when there was discrepancy and the wife was heavier and my colleague dr sherry stewart at dalhousie has the same sort of result pattern um, in her data set that showed that Really, it was looking at coping motives. And so when women were the heavier coper, coping drinker in the relationship, mm-hmm. um, everybody was less happy. And so I think that, you know, there's a few reasons for that. A lot of it is norms. So you mentioned, like, women did not drink at all. And even though that isn't the cultural norm necessarily, it is definitely the norm that women drink less. Mm-hmm. And so... Yeah. Um, if maybe in a relationship the woman is a much heavier drinker than the man, it can produce you know some un- discomfort I think for both parties. And a lot of what matters I think and what's what's important there is what's driving the woman to drink so much. So mm-hmm. women are actually more likely than men to drink in response to interpersonal conflict with other people. Uh-huh. And so I have a review paper coming out right now that's looking at, at all of this stuff together. And it tells a really interesting story that women are more likely to drink in response to conflict. But when women drink more than men, it makes more conflict and it sort of uh, results in this, this feedback loop that's just not good for relationships. And so coming up with ways that to target women-focused prevention intervention efforts, I think are really important. Yeah. So we're talking a lot about um, the fact that you work with people. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so how is it that you do your studies? Because do you do them through questionnaires? Do you do them with personal kind of interviews? That's a great question. So I, I've done a lot of different designs, methodologies in my studies. Um, many of them are just cross-sectional surveys. We ask questions about their, you know, your drinking or your marijuana or your tobacco use. Today I was looking at alcohol, marijuana, tobacco, opiate, illicit substances in the person and their partner and how those two, you know, your own use and your partner's use sort of collide and how that's related to relationship outcomes. So that's a, a traditional cross-sectional study. Um, I do a lot of diary studies. So we ask mm -hmm. people to report at night on how much they drank and their partner drank and if they had any conflict with their partner or other people how well they slept, things like that. Um, I do some experimental work. Obviously, all of the brief interventions are, are experiments, so we're testing our primary intervention condition against some control or multiple controls. Um, a lot of dyadic studies, so we ask, and this is surveys, but mm -hmm. it's asking both um, partners of a relationship to report on their perception of that relationship and their perception of their partner a lot of times, because mm -hmm. it really is the perception that matters. Um, longitudinal, a lot of them are, are measured over time, up to two-year follow-up. Um, I have done some interviews. I did some interviews with concerned partners. So mm -hmm. I was really interested in helping people who are concerned about their partner's drinking. And I was part of a, I helped with an NIH trial that focused on concerned partners who were also military spouses. Uh-huh. And they, they were enrolled in the study because they were concerned about their partner's drinking. And so this study used a four-session brief version of a popular intervention called CRAFT, Community Reinforcement and Family Therapy, uh, to try to help those concerned partners engage in self-care mm -hmm. and approach the drinker in a healthier way, in a more constructive way, uh, to try to help get that drinker into treatment. And so... Um, Using that design, that was a, just an experiment, but it was a longitudinal study. Uh, but those those participants were concerned partners. So I I then got some participants at the at the St. Petersburg and Tampa communities to come in if they were concerned about their partners drinking. So um, I asked them lots of questions about why are you concerned? How do you usually manage that concern? How successful is it when you engage in those behaviors? Because as you can imagine, some behaviors are more effective than others. Uh -huh. Uh, so I asked a lot of questions about that, and I have done some studies recruiting couples from the community, so we put flyers up all around places like this, coffee shops, bars, churches, doctor's offices, campuses, things like that, and we have the couples come in and engage in either a conversation with each other, or usually they fill out baseline questionnaires and then do something together, and then mm -hmm. they can go. So all kinds of stuff. So you've mentioned the word intervention a few times, and David said, as someone in cancer mm -hmm. research, he has an idea of what that word means, but mm -hmm. what does it mean in psychology? Because it does question. sound a bit like you stand in front of I somebody, know, right? Especially <laughs> when people hear, you know, for alcohol use, yeah, yeah, yeah. For alcohol, they're like, I've seen that TV show. <laughs> I yeah. have to say, no, no, it's not like the TV show. Exactly. It's not where we're, we're stepping in and telling them they, they have to totally change their life. Uh, it's more just, it depends on the study and the trial and the researcher, but I think in general, it's presenting people with information or having individuals engage in some kind of program where, uh, Hopefully, they come out of that program feeling like, oh, I might, you know, want to change my behavior in some way. So uh, personalized normative feedback is one type of intervention that I was trained um, in 
developing and evaluating where we give people feedback about how much other people actually drink. So if I were to ask you guys right now, are you mm -hmm. familiar with personalized normative feedback? No. Oh, good. Okay. So how many drinks per week do you think the average student at the University of South Florida drinks oh, in one week? And you can do it for uh, men or women. I don't know. Let's say two drinks a day, so uh -huh. 14 a week. Okay. Yep. David? <laughs> 10. Okay. And that those are exactly normal responses. So normally what we do is we recruit heavier drinkers into the lab. Um, and so because they're the ones that need need help a little bit more. Not saying. Why, why are you looking at me? <laughs> so, David's gesturing. <laughs> the general social psychological finding is that people overestimate other people's negative behavior. And so oh. um, it, when applied to drinking, people think that other people drink a heck of a lot more than they really drink. And there's a lot of reasons for that. You can't really tell at a college party how much someone is drinking, yeah. or you might not account for all the people who are not drinking at all, things like that. So if you recruit heavier drinkers into the lab, uh, they might say the average drinks per week is anywhere from 15 to 40. We've had upwards of 150. And so when you tell them, you know, you ask them that question, you say, okay, how much do you drink? How much do you think the average college student drinks? Usually they drink less than they think others do. Mm -hmm. And then you tell them, well, we actually asked a representative sample of college students on your campus and found that for your gender and, you know, status, the average college student drinks four drinks a week. And the person who was drinking 15 or 20 might go, oh, yeah, and it, you know, and so it's it's very brief, and you can do personalized normative feedback on the computer without any person talking to them. They can mm -hmm. just see the information presented on the screen. Um, so it it's interventions are not necessarily other people telling anybody what to do or how to change their behavior. The most effective ones use uh, an approach that we we call motivational interviewing. So it's a way to reduce defensiveness in the other person. And we sort of just ask them questions and talk about their life and what are some benefits and, and cons of their current behaviors and the sort of life they want to have and what can they do to approach and, and get to that life they want. Mm -hmm. And so um, personalized normative feedback is one really brief, cost-effective way to help people reduce their drinking. So it's super effective. It's been effective up to two years later at reducing oh, wow. individuals' drinking and alcohol-related consequences. And so um, we, we try to just do things that don't take a lot of effort. I particularly do a lot of intervention development that involves expressive writing. So I've mm -hmm. always kept a journal. Have you ever kept a journal? When I was 12, maybe? Yeah, yeah. When I was young, I think that's when it started. And I did it through, I still do it, not as often as I used to. Mm -hmm. But I find it really helpful for just processing everything that's happening in my life. And mm -hmm. I remember after writing, sometimes I would be a little bit tired and kind of just exhausted emotionally. But then afterwards, felt much better. And that's the general trend that people experience when they write expressively and so we have developed some interventions that involve writing writing about a time they drank a lot and had a bad time writing about a time you experienced conflict with someone it depends on what the outcome is but um, writing interventions take no no money no time no mm -hmm. practitioner you can just kind of have people do it on their own and it tends to be really helpful for them interesting mm -hmm. I don't know if I'd start writing a journal again but yeah it does sound like a, a neat way so you think it's just cathartic or what? Yeah, I think um, the, the, the research that's been done has shown that it, it sort of helps people 
make a narrative out of something that can be kind of, if it's traumatizing, if it's like someone goes through a really traumatic experience or a really emotionally complicated experience, they may try to not deal with it. And so mm -hmm. it sort of sits jumbled in their mind. And the way I like to think about writing is it forces that big jumbled mess to become a coherent narrative uh -huh. in a way that now makes sense. Now I've incorporated it with my my life and my story and now I can sort of move on based on the narrative that I've told rather than yeah. it just being this this weight that's kind of on our shoulders yeah interesting mm. so obviously in the process of getting people to participate in your studies mm -hmm. you need to have ethical approval so yes. can you outline how it is that you do that because to most scientists, the three letters IRB just trigger <laughs> panic attacks. At different universities have different um, types of IRBs, that, but everyone I think in general is like, oh my goodness, we have it's, to talk yeah, to the IRB. So we, we should explain that the IRB is the Institutional Review Board. Yes, yes. and. She's going to explain. <laughs> it's a, a group of people that you generally, if you want to do any sort of research that you'd like to publish, you would write up an application letting the IRB, the review board, know, that committee, know everything that you plan on doing. And um, they look at it and tell you if they think it violates any sort of ethical, what's the word? Uh, boundaries, maybe, yes. or something? Um, <laughs> if it violates any ethical boundaries with participants, and as long as it does not uh, constitute any risk of harm for participants or mm -hmm. that the risk is outweighed by the potential benefit uh, to society or to the benefits. So, yes, <laughs> it's all about um, the, the risk of asking potentially upsetting, emotionally upsetting questions. And so I do a lot of research on intimate partner violence, relationship functioning, jealousy, you know, things that are, that make people a little bit, ugh, your face right now, uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, almost every time in the application, I have to say, yes, there is a risk that individuals can become upset, you know, emotionally disturbed by the, the questions we're asking. We tell them they don't have to answer any question they don't want to answer. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, generally, I have found that individuals are happy to talk to me about, you know, in interviews. They're happy to chat about their relationships. And, and people like to talk about their relationships. It's one of the biggest mm -hmm. parts of their life, I think, um, in answering questions. So so the IRB is has always... I've never had a problem in terms of getting something approved. I've mm -hmm. always been able to work with them. But, for example, in the narrative intervention I was talking about, where people write about a time they drank a lot and had a bad time, um, sometimes people disclose really upsetting information in those narratives. Uh -huh. And so we read through them every day to make sure that no one is at risk of harming themselves or other yeah. people. And uh, and so the Institutional Review Board is, is tough, but I think it's something that's there ultimately for the greater good absolutely yeah yeah so i mean how often do you incur these kinds of really um traumatic details and how do you personally deal with them because yeah i mean we've been listening to a lot of podcasts recently about technology and uh -huh. we learned about these kind of farms where people are watching videos to ensure that they can take out uh, really upsetting content for places uh -huh. like YouTube. Oh, wow. And they're not considering then what happens to these poor people. They don't get any treatment for that kind of right. thing. And it, I mean, while we're not talking about the same scale, mm -hmm. um, this is possibly mm -hmm. triggering for you or Absolutely. somebody in your lab, for example. It could be, yeah. We, um, 
especially I would say I did a recent study. I, I was just interested in the idea of regret. Mm-hmm. And it, it's not connected to my research program in any coherent way, but I was just interested in if you ask people if they have regrets about their life, mm-hmm. it feels like about 50% of the time someone will go, I have no regrets. I love where I am right oh, now yeah. and I would not change a single thing. And then the other half were like, no, I have some things I would change. And so I wanted to see what, what sort of differentiated those two groups. And I asked individuals, I'm a mechanical Turk, so it was all online, but it was a national sample of people all across the U.S., about their deepest regret, their biggest regret. And they had to write at least like 500 words or something. And reading those was very difficult. I could only read about eight to 10 at a time and I'd have to take a break. Oh, wow. Because the things they were writing about were so deep and so involved. And, you know, I'm a pretty empathetic person, so it was really hard to take on all of those texts at once. But I think uh, self-care is just something in academia we all have to try to do a good job of, of doing. And fortunately, I get to do research that I want to do. And mm-hmm. so if I'm not really interested in it, you know, I, I'm always asking these questions to try to better understand what's going on so that then I can build an intervention to help. And so I think having that bigger picture perspective really helps, uh, you know, it, it makes it not as triggering and I can look at it with a more objective lens, even though it's it's really hard when people talk about violence, especially. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, do you have um, so if someone tells you something and you feel that they are in harm's way, mm-hmm. what is then the procedure to do something about? It depends that? on the study, and it depends on what is in the informed consent, and if the study is anonymous or confidential, and. Um, but generally, like if it's a student and they're talking about violence with another student, we would report it via Title IX mm-hmm. to our Title IX officer at USF. Um, and then that person would reach out to the student and just make sure, you know, that they have resources that they want. I have some resources that I give out in every single study at the end of it. I say, if you're experiencing any discomfort at all, here are some numbers you can call or websites you can visit to try to help. Um, and, and so we try to give lots of different resources based one for alcohol or a few for alcohol, a few for violence, mental health, things like that. So I think just debriefing people to try to help them sort of know where to go or give them referral services if they, if they feel like they need something. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what does self-care involve for you? Playing with my puppy. <laughs> I have a golden retriever puppy that I really wanted to bring tonight but decided <laughs> against it at the last minute. She's eight months right now and she's just like the love of my life. She's so sweet. She's amazing. <laughs> So I'm usually doing something with her, training her. She's in confirmation shows and obedience. And so we do a lot of, of stuff together, we go on walks and so, socialize, take her places. I, I wish we could capture your face for this podcast I right know, now. I love it. She's so <laughs> It just makes my day. Um, I do an exercise routine called Orange Theory. So uh-huh. I, I find, and it's just good to know, exercise comes with all sorts of benefits, as you probably well know. Um, so doing something to just get your mind. For me, it just it's like an hour where I don't have to think about anything else. Actually, uh-huh. I can't think about anything else because yep. they're pushing me so hard. <laughs> and it, that's really helpful. Yeah, writing. So there's been some studies showing that keeping a gratitude journal or thinking about what you're grateful for is uh, one really easy way to improve your life. And it almost consistently, 100% of the time, improves people's lives when they do it. Mm-hmm. So I have a, a sort of 
habit where before I eat, every time I have a meal or before I go to bed, I just think about things I'm grateful for. And I mean, I consider that self-care, just, you know, anything that's going to help. I read an article recently that talked about how self-care is not like baths and chocolate, how it's doing uh-huh. things like scheduling your doctor's appointments and mm-hmm. paying bills and doing those adult things that we don't want to do, but really ensure our you know long-term goals. And so, yeah. Uh, yeah, because we have to consider basic things like food and shelter exactly. as part of, yes. you know, <laughs> not losing it. Exactly. Um, so David says, going back to you as a researcher, what challenges did you have to face to become a scientist? Oh. If you had any. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I, I have to say, like, I, I'm, I'm kind of traumatized by other people's experiences yeah. through academia because yes. I've just had an amazing string of mentors mm. and yes. I always landed on my feet. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about professional development and how to help undergraduate students get into grad school, how to help graduate students get into postdocs and, you know, how to help postdocs get tenure track jobs. And, you know, for me personally, my path was also I'm super fortunate. I mean, I went straight from undergraduate to Ph.D., from Ph.D. to tenure track. I felt really, really lucky to be able to do that. But at the same time, my Ph.D. experience I remember I had a grant, I was working in two labs, I was teaching two classes a semester, I had a part-time job at Baylor College of Medicine, I was working on two other NIH-funded grants at the time, and, you know, I was trying to have a life as well, and I just remember um, I never said no, and I don't know if someone were to come to me now and say, would you recommend that for the future? I definitely think it helped me to have a CV that was pretty strong when I left graduate school, but it was a really challenging, trying time trying to manage all of those different competing obstacles at once. But I talk to graduate students now and I try to tell them, like, think about the end goal and the end, and what do you want your life to be like the rest of your life? What do you want every day to look like the rest of your life? And if they say, I want it to look like yours, I want to be a professor, then I say, okay, if you're a grad student, here's what your CV needs to look like by the time you leave. Uh-huh. If you're an undergrad, here's what your CV needs to look like by the time you leave. And yep. so, um, you know, the challenge is if you can keep that big picture perspective again on like, I'm doing this because I really I really want to have that life at the end of the day. Those challenges don't seem so challenging, you know, in light of the bigger picture. Yeah. I think realistic expectations are yes. That's probably the the primary concern for people nowadays is absolutely that just appreciate that it's not going to be this smooth sailing. <laughs> just despite the fact that that's what <laughs> happened for you. Yes, absolutely. And you know, I would certainly say it wasn't you know some it wasn't it was smooth, but it wasn't smooth on the day to day. It was yeah. trying to survive and keep my head above water, but. It worked out. And, you know, I think if people can keep that just keep swimming attitude, that's certainly going <laughs> to It's got to help. All right there, Dory. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, and my students will be like, oh, so we're going to run this study and we're going to analyze the data and we're going to write a paper and we can do that in like six months. And I look at them and I'm like, no, no, yes. <laughs> like three years. Let's yeah. be realistic to, to 
formulate the study and the hypotheses, write the IRB, program the study, collect the data, analyze the data, write up the manuscript, submit it for publication, wait four months or 12 months, it depends on the yes. journal, revise it again, another round and another round. You know, it's, it's definitely academia is made for long-term perspectives and thinking about Quite. it, not in terms of short-term enjoyment. Because yeah. otherwise, none of us would be here. <laughs> no, this is true. And you know, I was thinking about this the other day that um, someone was giving like a talk on it was like a it wasn't a retirement talk, but it was a talk about their career so far and she had a PowerPoint and everything. And I thought, okay, I'm 33 years old. If I retire in 30 years, if that's yeah, exactly. I'll probably work till I you know I'm on my deathbed, literally. <laughs> but let's say a 30-year productive career, is that enough time to do what I want to do? Mm-hmm. And I sort of got anxious because I was like, no, that's not even close <laughs> to enough time. Do you know how much time it takes to write a grant, much less to run the grant, to figure out what you want to get out of that grant, to then write another grant? And that's like 10 years right there. Yeah. And then, oh my goodness, no way. I, I just, it's it's overwhelming, but it's also super exciting to be able to do the science and do the, the research that we want to do. Yeah. So do you have many people working with for you right now? I do. My my lab here at USF St. Pete has approximately 13 undergraduate, graduate, post-baccalaureate wow. students in it. Yep. So we do a lot of activities together. It's really fun. We go bowling and uh, <laughs> <laughs> we have like matching shirts and cups and all kind of stuff. But I really enjoy the process of helping get them into graduate school, mm-hmm. talking to them about professional development and what it's like to be a, a professor. Because when I was an undergraduate, I had no idea what professor did for a living I just thought like they sat in their office and they taught that was it yeah 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 I didn't know what a manuscript was I didn't know what a CV was so I try to make sure that they leave my lab knowing yeah I don't think I think I was probably a second or third year undergraduate before Mm -hmm. I thought that oh what is a PhD oh I can do this I can carry on doing science this is awesome exactly same yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. so uh, I don't know about you, but I was first generation as well. So mm-hmm. I didn't have that kind of input from people to tell me. Yep. But I'm starting to think that that's probably true for the majority of people in science it right now, isn't it? It is. You know what? You're right. I don't know what the data say, but I would believe it. And I mean, just anecdotally thinking about the people that I know. And honestly, being a first generation student, I think really... It's a selection bias, right? Because mm-hmm. people are only going to do it if they're really motivated to do it. Yeah. And it's going to weed out those students who are not motivated. So I have students in my lab and I always tell them, like, this is a, you get what you put in. You get what you want out of it experience. If you want to be here and just do the day-to-day tasks that I asked you, that's fine. But if you want to come out of here and be a star and go to your PhD program of choice, like, you can do that. But you have to want to do it. And, and motivation is so important in academia. And like why you do what you do. Do you do it because you feel like you have to? Do you do it for a paycheck? Hopefully none of us do it for those reasons. We do mm-hmm. it because we want to improve the world, right? We want to better understand the world and why people do what they do. So I know that's what drives me. Yeah. Well, that seems like an excellent place to stop. Okay. It's very positive and hopeful. <laughs> and, you know, I, I hope your students appreciate the, the value of the kind of mentorship they're getting in in their training um so we'd like to say thank you so much for meeting with us today and it's it's been an absolute blast thank you so much uh, for getting for getting the word out there about science when i when i went to your website and i was reading and listening to all the podcasts it was just (laughs) so much fun to hear i mean the different 
it, there's so many different branches and so much to learn and people are doing research and then it just goes into the journals but you guys are really getting it into the world and I have such a passion for that so I'm really really thankful for that thank you you basically just me. summed up our podcast <laughs> that's that's essentially why we do it yeah so um yeah and obviously to to explain the diversity of the people doing it as well yes so amazing yes. thank you so much yes thank you alcohol conference and you know it is not uncommon for researchers at this alcohol conference to get really drunk and I, of course I was not I had like a martini or two at dinner but it was raining sort of like it is right now and it was nighttime and I was actually going with my friend Emily to the hotel lobby to meet up with another scientist that I like so admire Ryan Shorey I was super excited to see him and meet him and talk to him and it was like 9.30 at night, and we were walking back from Hell's Kitchen, actually, to the hotel lobby, but it was raining, and I had Toms on, Tom shoes, which uh -huh. are like, they're super comfortable, but they have no traction on the bottom. And so we're walking in the rain, and I remember thinking, like, we should probably get an Uber, but we were just too, we were already there, you know? And there was a puddle, and I tried to jump the puddle, and I fell, and I rolled my ankle. And because I wanted to meet Ryan Shorey so bad, <laughs> I have like this academic, you know, I was like, I'm fine. I'm totally fine. I'm gonna, I'll be fine. We'll just get an Uber the rest of the way. We'll be fine. And I looked down at my ankle and it was this big. I mean, immediately like baseball size. And I was like, okay, never mind. Maybe we'll sit for a minute. And so it was Pride Weekend and it was a Sunday night. So I really didn't want to go to the ER on a Sunday night at Pride Weekend. I was like, I don't know what sort of riffraff is going to be at the ER. I'll just wait till tomorrow morning. But my symposium talk is tomorrow at like 3 p.m. So I just have to be done by 2 so that I can change and head back down and be at the conference. So I went to the ER at like 6 a.m. And I was there 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, noon. And I had not even had the x-rays yet. And I was like, I do not want to not give this talk, but also I, I can't help it. I want to make sure I don't have a fractured bone either. So I, I was talking to the chair of the symposium and I was like, what if I give the talk from the ER? <laughs> and she's like, mm. you know, just kind of, I could tell she was shaking her head. She's like, uh, I don't know how that would work. And I was like, okay. I brought my laptop. I'm sitting in the ER bed, right? I'm like, I have my laptop. They have Wi-Fi here. I'm pretty sure there's a way that I can just pull up the PowerPoint and record narrating it as I go through and then email it to you, but email's really big. Maybe I can put it on YouTube and you can just like play the YouTube video. And she's like, Lindsay, the talk's in like an hour. Are you gonna be able to like record this and get it uploaded and sent to me? And I said, I don't know, but we gotta try. So I put this little sign on the ER door that was like, please do not disturb for 15 minutes. <laughs> and I was like, okay, Lindsay, you have one time to go through this. And I pressed play and I just kind of went through it as best I could remember. And you know, then I uploaded it to YouTube. And it was funny because I opened being like, Hi everybody, like this is Lindsay Rodriguez. I'm really sorry I can't be with you right now. I'd much rather be there, but I'm actually in the emergency room. And I think everybody was like, yeah. <laughs> and I said, I'm fine. I'm just seeing if I have a <laughs> fractured ankle. <laughs> and uh, my biggest, like my biggest academic 
inspiration. Ken Leonard, I guess, was in the audience. And he told me a few months later, he's like, that was the most impressive talk I ever saw. (laughs) (laughs) Just the whole story. Everything was hilarious. So, yeah. (laughs) It was an alcohol-related conference, giving an alcohol-related injury talk. (laughs) Kudos. We had a lovely time at the Poor Tap Room in St. Pete for this episode, but in the absence of meeting in person like many other organisations, we're now starting to record some of our episodes online and live. So if you'd like to join us and ask questions of our guests in the moment, follow our social media, so Twitter at 2, as in the number, 2SCIS, and Facebook and Instagram at 2 Scientists for Updates. We're also venturing into the realm of broadcasting that is new to us and requires more money. So if you can spare a few dollars, go to our website to the number twoscientists.org where you can find the links to become a patron, buy us a coffee or just make a one-time donation. We are part of a registered 501c3, so donations are tax deductible. Thank you all for listening and supporting us. Yeah, me too. <laughs> oh, you, you still have to tell your dirt story. Yeah. Oh, yes. The what story? Your dirt oh, story. Oh, yes. That's what we call it. Which one was it? What did I tell you guys? Oh, the one where I hurt my foot. Yes, yes. <laughs> I'll tell you one that doesn't go on the air, but it is definitely my dirt story. That I was like, oh, should I talk about that? No, I shouldn't talk about that. <laughs>